Cause we got the alternative energy right. Molecular free autonomy And welcome to the Radioactive Show Produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne And heard nationally on the Community Radio Network Hi, my name is Marissa This episode of the Radioactive Show Was recorded and produced on the unceded lands Of the Kulin Nation For 3CR Melbourne Today's show is about the prohibition of nuclear weapons and general anti-nuclear campaigns. I will be speaking first of all with Jim Green from Friends of the Earth in regards to general campaigns in the anti-nuclear arena and then I will be speaking with Dave Sweeney who is from ICANN in regards to the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Hi, Jim. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Marissa. It's lovely to have you. Jim, I'm wondering if you could just um, introduce yourself and including your title and what sort of work you do. Yep. Uh, I'm the National Anti-Nuclear Campaigner with Friends of the Earth. So there's a whole bunch of issues that we're working on. Often uranium is prominent. Uh, Not quite so much at the moment just because the uranium industry is in severe decline and there are no proposals for new uranium mines so we're in a fairly good spot there but there are operating mines in Australia and a bunch of problems and a bunch of contaminated sites need to be cleaned up. Uh, Nuclear power is also quite important because there's still this ongoing drumbeat of support for nuclear power in Australia so we push back against that as hard as we can. Um, but the most important issue um, for us at the moment is the plans for a national nuclear waste dump uh, near a place called Kimber, which is on the Air Peninsula in South Australia. And that's problematic for all sorts of reasons, and that's our number one campaign at the moment. And how does colonisation and the genocide of Aboriginal people fit into that scenario? Well, I would say it's death by a thousand cuts so there's just for example with uranium mining there's legislation in South Australia the Northern Territory and I think also Western Australia which means that uranium mines don't have to comply with state heritage protection laws uh, which is just completely indefensible and so offensive Uh, and with nuclear waste dumps we've got federal legislation which exempts any proposals for nuclear waste dumps from the Aboriginal Land Rights Act, from the Aboriginal Heritage Act uh, and various other pieces of legislation. Uh, And again, it's completely indefensible. So uh, that's why I say death by a thousand cuts. There's just these insults and injuries that are perpetrated continuously and it goes on for decades and decades. uh, And all of it is incredibly racist and incredibly offensive. And the last point I would make about all of that is that it's not a one-way street. There's so much history of successful Aboriginal opposition to nuclear projects in Australia. Uh, So in many respects, there's there's a whole lot of good news stories. Uh, Plans for uranium mines that have been killed off, plans for nuclear waste dumps and so on. So um, it's, uh, it's a really important fight. Absolutely. And I wanted to really draw attention to listeners about the the consequences that can happen to with the Aboriginal communities. 
Specifically, though, can you speak in general about Kimba and the latest update and what is the background to all this so that any listeners that have tuned in that don't know will be able to to, to get some information? Yeah, so for at least a quarter of a century, successive federal governments have been trying to establish a national nuclear waste dump in Australia. Uh, but they continually fail, and they mostly fail because traditional owners have fought and won campaigns to prevent the imposition of nuclear waste dumps. So the latest proposal is, as I, as I mentioned, near Kimber, and it's on the land of the Bangla traditional owners, who are unanimous in their opposition to this proposed nuclear waste dump. Uh, the traditional owners were excluded from a so-called community ballot which was initiated by the federal government a couple of years ago. Uh, they even went to court to try to get included in the ballot, but they were unsuccessful. So they carried out their own independent professional ballot of traditional owners, which found uh, 0% support for a, a nuclear waste dump on Bangla country amongst Bangla traditional owners. Um, so the way it's going to play out is that the federal minister, Keith Pitt, who's a Queensland LNP member, he will nominate the Kimber site in the near future and there will be a judicial review or challenge or legal challenge initiated by the Bangalore traditional owners and they seem reasonably confident of winning that legal challenge, which I'm really pleased about. I hope they're right, uh, but that's where we're at now. It's a very slight process, but um, we'll, we will have this legal challenge and see how that goes. And then we've also got federal elections coming up, which and a state election here in South Australia. And there's a whole lot of other process issues which the government would have to go through as well, in particular an environmental assessment under the EPBC Act and also the federal nuclear regulator, Arpanza, would also have to give its tick of approval and that would involve an inquiry and, and a formal process. And as the national anti-nuclear campaigner for Friends of the Earth, what would you recommend? What, what are the recommendations? Well, the main one is uh, that well over 90% of this waste, if we measure by radioactivity, is stored at Lucas Heights, at this site operated by ANSTO, the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation. And there's no need to move that waste, not in the short or medium term, perhaps in the longer term, but the waste can simply stay at Lucas Heights. It's as simple as that. That's where we've got a, a, the concentration of Australia's nuclear experts. That's where we've got decent security. And simply dumping it on farmland in South Australia is irresponsible and it's short-sighted and it's indefensible. And, uh, yeah, it doesn't really solve any problems. So in a short and medium term, there's a really simple solution, which is simply to leave the waste where it is. Absolutely leave it where it is. Why a waste dump? What is the rationale? Well, that's a really good question. Um, well, if you go back 25 years, the rationale was that they were very keen to build a new nuclear research reactor at Lucas Heights. 
and the government said, we're going to impose this reactor whether you like it or not, but we will get rid of the waste from Lucas Heights. So that was the political imperative for uh, for a national nuclear waste dump. Um, but anyway, that's, those issues and debates no longer apply. They did build the new reactor. Uh, then there was another political rationale, which was that some of Australia's waste goes overseas for processing, and uh, the reprocessing waste comes back to Australia. And they were very keen not to send that reprocessing waste to Lucas Heights. They wanted to send it somewhere else. Um, but again, that debate has come and gone. There's nowhere else to send the waste, so it is going back to Lucas Heights. Some of it already has gone back to Lucas Heights and more will go there next year. So these days, if you ask what the rationale is for this dump, well, I'm not at all clear. I don't think there is a rationale. I think some of it's just momentum. There's been an assumption that we need a national nuclear waste dump for so long that they seem incapable of really thinking through whether that whether there's any logic to it. Or to put the same, the same issue another way, sometimes I say this is... Uh, this nuclear waste dump is a solution in search of a problem, and there isn't really a problem. The waste can simply stay at Lucas Heights. Not to mention the fact that it's terribly unsafe if that nuclear waste was to escape. Yeah, there's a whole, so many variations of this nuclear waste. Some of it is innocuous and some of it is extremely deadly. Um, the most hazardous stuff is would be the spent nuclear fuel from the reactors at Lucas Heights, also called irradiated nuclear fuel. And uh, as you can imagine, that c- contains a toxic soup of all sorts of different radioisotopes in fairly high concentrations and volumes, and that is actually high-level nuclear waste uh, when it comes from the reactor. And as it cools down, it is reclassified as long-lived intermediate-level waste. And one of the problems is that that is destined for deep underground disposal, but the government hasn't even begun a process to move forward with deep underground disposal of that waste, let alone find a site for deep underground disposal. So all they want to do with that long-lived intermediate-level waste is to move it from above-ground storage at Lucas Heights to above-ground storage at Kimber for what they call interim storage. And it just is so bizarre and so illogical uh, and we just wonder what on earth is going on in Canberra because none of their plans make any sense whatsoever. Absolutely. I was going to speak to you generally about other campaigns but I think we might leave that for another show, Jim. I think that the that Kimber, the Kimber campaign is really important, isn't it? And that's something that's at the forefront at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. We're going to be interviewing David Sweeney next um, from ICANN and we're going to be speaking with him about the the treaty, the government's response to the treaty um, for the prohibition of, of nuclear weapons. Could you briefly comment, um, just briefly, on the treaty? I, I believe that Australia doesn't want to be in it. Yeah, that's right. Australia has refused to sign or ratify the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And uh, even further, Australia has undermined that international process to get the UN Treaty in place and in force. 
so it played a disgraceful role. But what I can say that Dave Sweeney probably won't say is that Dave, along with Dimity Hawkins and many other people from Australia, were absolutely central to getting this treaty in place. It's quite an extraordinary achievement. They started something called ICANN about 15 years ago, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, and that has grown exponentially and attracted an, an incredible amount of international support, and they won the Nobel Peace Prize. And ICANN was also very important in getting the UN to establish this treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. So it's a huge credit to Australia that we've managed to play such a, a leading role and a huge credit to Dave Sweeney and Dimity and so many other people in Australia who led that work. Thank you so much. And, and finally, could you just let listeners know how they can, what they can do in terms of trying to stop the dump at Kimber? Yeah, uh, Potentially. well, we keep our website up to date and in, including any calls for action. So I'll just, I'll give out the website. It's nuclear.foe.org.au slash waste. So that's the best thing to do is for people to just to keep, keep in touch with that website. And of course, people can sign up for our campaign updates and... Uh, yeah, so keep in touch. There's still a long way to go with this campaign and we need all the support we can get. Thanks very much, Jim. And in September, I'm hoping that I can speak with you about about Marilinga. I'll be doing a show on that. So um, stay tuned for that, listeners. No worries. Thanks, Marisa. Thanks a lot, Jim. Take care. Yes, bye-bye. Bye-bye. And we were just speaking with Jim Green, who is the anti-nuclear campaigner for Friends of the Earth. You're listening to the Radioactive Show broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. And we're going to be speaking next with Dave Sweeney, who is one of the co-founders of ICANN. So let's talk about nuclear weapons. Let's talk about the government's response on the prohibition and of nuclear weapons, and I was wondering if you could talk about that and also give a little bit of a history in regards to the treaty. Well, the, the ICANN story is, is really interesting because what it basically is is a story of, um, of success and activism and agency coming out of um, a real time of despair and out of a sense of futility. In 2005, there was a gathering in New York of, to review the progress and compliance with the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, one of the key instruments of uh, arms control. And uh, in that meeting, which went for weeks, they couldn't even agree on an agenda. It was uh, every effort to have uh, a constructive discussion about the impacts, threats, risks of nuclear weapons and ways to reduce nuclear weapons and those risks was blocked by the um, nuclear weapon states. And the meeting came away with nothing. It was a time of profound international tension and risk and this big keynote meeting absolutely failed to deliver. And many people had spent a long time working around issues of nuclear weapons restriction, constraint and abolition were really devastated by, by this. And uh, for a group of us in Melbourne that started a discussion 
about the need to move away from from these uh, instruments and approaches that were dominated by the nuclear weapon states and captured to the intransigence and hostility of the nuclear weapon states and to create a new approach. And the approach was one around saying, well, look, when it comes to chemical weapons, biological weapons, cluster munitions, landmines, there have been specific conventions and treaties that make those weapons illegal. And that's really important, really positive and works. Why isn't there one for the worst possible weapons of all being nuclear weapons? And so there was a very clear commitment not to get into a big public education campaign or a, a whole range of different ways a campaign could have gone, but to say, let's, let's work and put our effort into creating the ground and the conditions for a focused and dedicated treaty that will make nuclear weapons illegal. And when we achieve that, we then have a tool and an instrument and a way to wind back these weapons and to isolate those nations that have them or rely on them. And so from the ashes of a failed process in 2005 came a whole sense of um, really important and, and animated conversations and discussions and the establishment of ICANN. So it went from that being formally launched in 2007, ICANN, to the text of a treaty to ban nuclear weapons being formally adopted by the UN 10 years later in 2017, the year that ICANN won the Nobel Peace Prize for those efforts. Um, and then it went from an agreed treaty text in 2017 to entry into force, where 50 states not only sign but formally ratify the treaty, which makes it then a binding treaty in international humanitarian law. And that happened, entry into force and the formal illegal status of nuclear weapons happened in January of this year. And it's a profound um, outcome because what it means is for the first time ever, nuclear weapons, these most horrible and indiscriminate and existential threat of weapons are now unlawful, they're illegal. If you possess them, threaten them, use them, advance them, you're acting outside international law. Um, that's a really significant step and it gives us a real... It basically gives us our best way to get rid of our worst weapons. And one of the things that uh, really strikes me when I think of this story, I love the fact that it grew out of uh, Australian initiative, but I particularly love the fact that people refuse to give in to despair or just continue to beat their head, our head, against the door of the nuclear weapon states and said, look, if you're not going to take a serious attitude, we're going to bypass you and leave you stranded as the obsolete, archaic, threatening creatures that you are while the world moves on. Um, and that's where we are now. There's 55 nations that have currently ratified and are state parties to the treaty. There's 86 of the signatories, some of them, a lot of them, are in the process now of doing their domestic procedures to become state parties. Um, there's growing momentum. There's more countries coming on board. And we've just had confirmation this week that the first meeting of the state parties, the first gathering of all these countries and a whole range of civil society groups and observers, and that will take place in Vienna in March 2022, which will focus global attention 
on this global threat of nuclear weapons and the global tool to get rid of them through the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Dave, that's a really great overview and it's it's important that people understand, isn't it, about how important um, this treaty is. Now, just a question here. Uranium mining, is that tied in? It's tied in in one sense of that uranium is the primary source fuel of both nuclear power and nuclear weapons, but it is not tied into the treaty. And the treaty actually explicitly um, avoids or explicitly accepts that countries will and can make their own choice in relation to the use of nuclear power. So it makes a distinction between nuclear weapons and nuclear power, which makes it possible for countries that have nuclear power to also sign and ratify and comply with and promote the treaty to get rid of nuclear weapons. So for many of us, we see the nuclear industry as uh, as uh, a linked chain of contamination and threat. Um, others see a distinction between civilian use of nuclear power and military threat of global extinction between reactors and weapons is a difference. So what the treaty has done has, to ta- has been to take a, a real politic approach and say, um, OK, the target here is not all things atomic, it is nuclear weapons, and this treaty prohibits nuclear weapons. So that was a difficult set of discussions, but it's a set of discussions which means that a whole range of people and players and nation states can take action against weapons while still retaining their civilian nuclear capacity or a civilian nuclear power option. Um, and I think uh, it's it's important in the sense of uh, generating momentum to, to do that. It's that one of those cases of... You know, the the perfect being the enemy of the good, if it was all things atomic rather than just weapons. So the focus is very clearly on weapons. That doesn't preclude many of the people engaged in this process or concerned about nuclear weapons also having wider concerns about radioactive waste management, the impacts of uranium mining, the threat of, of uh, nuclear power. So can you talk about how far along... Um, countries are in in the treaty process. Yeah, it's it's been really interesting to watch. There was over 120 countries voted for the treaty and are formally supportive of the treaty uh, through the UN process. So then, all of them, 86 have now taken the next step to be formal signatories, and all of them, 55 have taken the next step to ratify and be formal state parties. So, you know, there's there's a, a quarter of the world, more than um, 30% of the world is formally on board with this. Another 30% of the world is uh, on board in principle and in train to be, to be ratifying and endorsing and embracing this treaty. So the momentum is certainly growing. And we're seeing also, um, as well as nation states, and as I I mentioned, this meeting of state parties in March in Vienna will be a really crystallising event for that. 
but we're also seeing um, at both a national level and an international level really significant voices and actors and constituencies coming on board uh, into support the treaty. Um, big numbers of faith and religious organisations. The Vatican actually was one of the first signers as a state party of the, the treaty. The Vatican is a state party to the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons and the pontiff, uh, Pope Francis, is uh, very, very clear and very outspoken on this issue. He has said that not just the use, but the threat of the use, the possession of nuclear weapons is an affront to heaven. Um, so that it, it goes from the, the Vatican, the painted ceilings of the Vatican, uh, right through. Um, there is the International Red Cross Red Crescent Society, which is a massive and significant and dispersed organisation, is a key supporter of the treaty and a key promoter of the treaty, sees it as essential. Red Cross is the biggest non-government emergency relief provider in the world. They did a dedicated and detailed study of their ability to respond to even a limited nuclear exchange and they said that we couldn't. We can't make any meaningful uh, repair or restitution. So that which we cannot influence or or uh, uh, make preparations after it happens, that which we can't uh, prepare for, we need to prevent. And so they're very strong, Red Cross, Red Crescent. And there's range of international lawyer groups, as you could imagine, civil society groups, environment groups, public health and medical associations around the world and around Australia. In Australia, we've seen the local government association, the AC, Bishops Congress. Like it, it rolls on and on with this growing momentum. The day of these weapons is over. They have no place on a living planet. Dave, thanks so much for coming onto the program. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And, you know, amid some pretty grim days of COVID and climate change and this and that, we don't need the trifecta of nuclear weapons. And it is a really positive story of how the action of good-hearted, good-headed people around the world, through this country and around the world, can make a profound difference, even in something as big and as locked in as nuclear war fighting plans. Thanks for listening to the Radioactive Show. You can download the podcast of this program at www.3cr.org.au radioactive. If you'd like to get in contact, you can email us on radioactiveshow.3cr at gmail.com. The Radioactive Show is produced with the support of Friends of the Earth Nuclear Free Collective in the studios of 3CR on the lands of the Kulin Nation in Fitzroy, Victoria and is broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. Thanks for listening and tune in again next week for more news and views on nuclear peace and energy issues.